Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published, without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 2, Number 163, Dinner in the House of Eli, the Pharisee of Capernaum. Eli's house is very busy today. Servants and maidservants go and come, and amongst them there is little Elisha, a lively little child. Then there are two stately personages and two more. I know the former two, as they are the ones who went with Eli to Matthew's house. I do not know the latter two, but I hear them being called Samuel and Joachim. Jesus comes last with the Iscariot. After solemn reciprocal salutations, there is the question, Only with this one? And the others? The others are around the country. They will come in the evening. Oh, I am sorry. I thought it was true. Last night I invited only you, meaning all the rest with you. Now I was afraid they might be offended or they might disdain to come to my house owing to past light disagreements. (laughs) The old man laughs. Oh, no. My disciples do not nourish proud touchiness or incurable grudge. Of course, of course. Very well, let us go in then. The usual purification ceremony, and then they go into the dining room, which opens onto a large yard, where the first roses bring a happy note. Jesus caresses little Alicia, who is playing in the yard, and who has only four little red marks on his hand from the past trouble. He does not even remember his past fear, but he remembers Jesus, and he wants to kiss him and be kissed by him with the spontaneity of children. With his little arms round Jesus' neck, he speaks to him through his hair, confiding that when he is big, he will go to him, and he asks, Do you want me? I want everybody. Be good, and you will come with me. The little boy goes away, bounding about. They sit at the table, and Eli wishes to be so perfect that he puts Jesus beside him, and on the other side, Judas who is thus between Eli and Simon, as Jesus is between Eli and Uriah. The meal begins. Their conversation at first is inconsequential. It then becomes interesting, and since wounds are sore and chains are heavy, the talk turns to the eternal topic of the enslavement of Palestine by Rome. I do not know whether it was done deliberately or without any evil purpose. I know that the five Pharisees complain of the new Roman abuses as of a sacrilege, and they want to get Jesus interested in the discussion. You know, they want to pry into our income down to the last coin, and as they have realized that we meet in the synagogue to speak about that, 
and about them. Now they are threatening to come in without any respect. I am afraid that they will enter also the houses of priests one of these days, shouts Joachim. What do you say about that? Do you not feel disgusted? asks Eli. Jesus replies to the direct question. As an Israelite, yes. As a man, no. Why that distinction I do not understand. Are you two in one? No, but there is in me flesh and blood. That is, the animal. And there is the spirit. The spirit of an Israelite, compliant with the law, suffers because of such violations. The flesh and blood do not suffer, because I lack the goad that hurts you. Which one? Interest. You said that you meet in the synagogues to speak also of business without fear of intrusive ears, and you are afraid you will no longer be able to do so, and consequently you are afraid you may not be able to conceal even a small coin from the tax collectors, and that you may be taxed exactly according to your assets. I possess nothing. I live on the charity of my neighbors and on my love for them. I have neither gold, nor fields, nor vineyards, nor houses, except my mother's house in Nazareth which is so small and poor as to be ignored by the tax assessors. Consequently, I am not afraid that they may find out that my statement of income is untrue and that I may be fined and punished. All I possess is the word that God gave me, and that I give. But it is such a sublime thing that man has no means whatsoever to affect it. But if you were in our position, what would you do? Well... Do not take it amiss if I tell you quite frankly my opinion, which is in contrast to yours. I solemnly tell you that I would behave differently. How? Not offending against the holy truth. It is always a sublime virtue. But even it is but when it is applied to such human things as taxes. But then how they would fleece us. But you are not considering that we own a lot and we would have to pay a lot. You have said it. God has granted you a lot. In proportion, you must give a lot. Why behave so badly, as unfortunately many do, so that poor people are taxed out of proportion? We are aware of the situation. How many taxes there are in Israel, our taxes, which are unjust. The great, who already have so much, benefit by them, whereas they are the despair of poor people, who have to pay them and have to starve to find the money. Love for our neighbor does not recommend that. We Israelites should be so thoughtful as to take upon ourselves the burden of the poor. You are saying that because you are poor, too. No, Uriah, I am saying that because it is justice. Why has Rome been able to oppress us thus? Because we sinned, and we are divided by hatred. The rich hate the poor, the poor hate the rich. Because there is no justice and the enemy takes advantage of the situation as and has subdued us. You have mentioned various reasons. Are there any more? I would not like to go against the truth by twisting the nature of a place consecrated to religion and making it a sure shelter for human things. Are you reproaching us? No, I am replying to you. Listen to your own consciences. You are masters and therefore... I would say that it is time to rise, to rebel, to punish the invader, and to restore our kingdom. True, true, you are right, Simon, but the Messiah is here. He must do it, replies Eli. 
But the Messiah, for the time being, forgive me, Jesus, is only goodness. He advises everything except to rebel. We will... Listen, Simon. Remember the book of Kings. Saul was at Gilgal. The Philistines were at Michmash. The people were afraid and dispersed. The prophet Samuel was not coming. Saul decided to precede the servant of God and offer the sacrifice himself. Remember the answer that Samuel, on his arrival, gave to the imprudent Saul? You have acted like a fool, and you have not carried out the order that the Lord had commanded you. If you had not done that, now the Lord would have confirmed your sovereignty over Israel forever. But now your sovereignty will not last. An untimely and proud action served neither the king nor the people. God knows the hour. Man does not. God knows the means. Man does not. Leave things to God and deserve his help by means of holy behavior. My kingdom is not a kingdom of rebellion and ferocity, but it will be established. It is not a preserve for a few people. It will be universal. Blessed are those who will come to it, who are not led into error by my poor appearance, according to the spirit of the world, and who will see the Savior in me. Be not afraid. I shall be king, the king who came from Israel, the king who will extend his kingdom all over mankind. But you, masters of Israel, must not misunderstand my words and those of the prophets who announce me. No human kingdom, no matter how powerful it may be, is universal and eternal. The prophets say that mine will be such. That should enlighten you on the truth and spirituality of my kingdom. I leave you, but I have a request to make to Eli. This is your purse. In a shelter of Simon of Jonas there are some poor people who have come from everywhere. Come with me to give them the alms of love. Peace be with you all. Stay a little longer, begged the Pharisees. I cannot. There are people whose bodies and hearts are diseased, and they are waiting to be comforted. Tomorrow I will be going away. I want everyone to see me leave without being disappointed. Master, I am old and tired. Please go in my name. You have Judas of Simon with you, and we know him well. Do it yourself. God be with you. Jesus goes out with Judas, who, as soon as they are in the square, says, The old viper. What did he mean? Forget about it. Or better still, just think that he wanted to praise you. Impossible, master. Those mouths never praise who does good. I mean, never sincerely. And with regard to his coming, it is because he loathes the poor and is afraid of their curses. He has tortured the poor people here so often— I can swear it without any fear, and therefore, be good, Judas, be good. Let God judge. And the vision ends. My Way of Life, from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood, Chapter 4, Creation. Creatures of God, the Mystery of the Beginning, Contradiction versus Mystery, God's Work and Ours, Sources of Humility. Creation. When we turn our minds to the consideration of creatures, we do not, by that fact, turn away from God. Our creature world is not an alien one into which divinity enters timidly by our gracious invitation or is excluded by our inhospitable provincialism. It is, in fact, not nearly so much our world as God's. 
If we insist on an exclusive concentration on ourselves and other creatures, we miss most of what has captivated our eyes, and what little we see is distorted into a grotesque ugliness that offends the mind and revolts the heart of a simple man. A scrutiny of the beginnings of creatures confronts us with the magnificent spectacle of omnipotence sharing infinite goodness. To look at creatures themselves is to marvel at the perfection of detail and symmetry of organization in the executed plan of the divine architect. Infinite wisdom achieving the patterns of divinity, dazzling reflections of divinity glittering before the eyes of men. A glance ahead, down the road along which each creature rushes so intently, shows us the fixed purpose of all nature. To get closer to God, to struggle to that individual perfection which is a better imaging of the infinite perfection, to come to the beginning and the goal of all that is. If our eyes are really open to the world in which we live, then every detail of it shows us God, God sharing his infinite goodness, the divine architect achieving cosmic plans to the minutest detail, God, the ultimate perfection, calling forth all the world's activity that each thing in the world might, in its own finite measure, reach for and come to rest in that only final goal. All the world is filled with the happy, ceaseless clamor of all its creatures, shouting from the very depths of their natures, God shared his goodness with us. What we have is God's, what we are hurrying back to him. We could enjoy the story of creation if we were sure it were not true. The story of God's will effortlessly plucking from nothingness the whirling suns of the universe could be as pleasantly mystifying as a magician's tricks if we were as sure that this too was a divine trick. Not really so, quite beyond our immediate understanding of how the trick was worked, but still only a trick with its own radically simple explanation. Faced with the fact that the story of creation is true, that God did indeed so call everything from nothingness, we are caught up breathless, almost incapable of protest. The magnitude of the thing so far outstripping all our ordinary ways of getting things done hits us with something of a terror of a man suddenly gone blind. For when we plunge into this truth, we cannot see. It is not only that creation stands at the brink of the world— Every time we dare look at that great truth, we stand on the brink of the world of our understanding, caught between the terror of mystery's invitation to step out into the darkness and our mind's stubborn insistence on knowing the truth. There is humiliation here for a proud man. This truth is so much bigger than the widest stretches of his own mind. There is comfort here for the wise man, the comfort of knowing that there are truths too big for the mind of man, of knowing that this paltry mind of ours is not the full measure of all the earth. Wise or proud, terrified or enticed as we may be, the truth stands. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Our minds do not accept the boon of mystery easily. They writhe and wriggle, twist and turn, pout and rebel like an infant fighting off the food that alone will preserve its life and give it growth. No matter how many blankets of centuries we pile on the question of the beginning of things, 
that question is not smothered. That the world began yesterday or a million years ago has nothing to do with the mystery of how it began. It is no help to plunge into the middle of things and go on from there, pretending that there was no beginning and will be no end, or that beginnings and ends are trivial things compared to the zest of the world right now. It is amusing but not effective to hide behind a contradiction as a child hides behind its own hands, explaining gravely to ourselves and the world that at some time random gathered itself together and the world began. But this is obviously a child's game, not meant to deceive even the child, for the fantasy of a world giving birth to itself is no less ludicrous than that of an infant bringing itself forth from its own womb. Certainly God's ways are not our ways. We are only cooks, and our cookery is no better than the food we have to work with, sometimes a great deal worse. Our labors, even the greatest of them, hardly escape the level of puttering. At least we must have something given us to work on, material whose nature we must take as a gift that it is. We do not author the solidity of stone, the live beauty of wood, the brilliance of the spectrum's colors. Given these things, with time, labor, some gift of artistry, we can do wonders. We stand off in admiration of the finished product in an exultant kind of paternity and say, this is mine, I made it. Of course, it is much more God's than ours. We are makers, not creators. In all our works, there is the presupposed material, the process of change where genius has its innings and the finished product. In thinking of God's work, we must cross out the first of these two steps. The finished product jumps instantly into existence at the creative command of God. God, you see, is first. There is nothing before him, not even some vague material for his workmanship. He is omnipotent. He has no need of time to bend stubborn material to his purposes, no need for laborious assembling of parts. There is no measure of his strength and ability in terms of time or in any other terms. He serves no apprenticeship. He does not come to the peak of his own powers through the years. The world is not a growth in the womb of God living by his life, nor is it a parasitical growth adhering to the very substance of God. It has not oozed out of some mysterious divine stuff. It has come into being and is sustained in its existence solely by the intellect and the will of the Almighty. Modern man can stand proudly beside the gigantic machine that belches such wonders and smile at the notion that omnipotence is behind the birth of the universe. The mountain labored and brought forth a mouse. Imagine omnipotence behind the pettiness of an insect, the lowliness of a worm, the fragility of a hummingbird, infinite wisdom behind the senseless badgering of dust by vagrant winds. It would be well for the self-made God to look to the obvious truth that power is manifested not only in what is done, but in how it is done. With time and patient labor, ants can pile up grains of sand. A child in a moment of play can heap sands higher than the ants could ever manage. Medical care and natural recuperative powers mend many a broken leg over weeks and months. The divine touch 
heals it perfectly in an instant, and we recognize a miracle. We see that we are in the presence of greater power than the world can muster. The least thing brought into existence by creation is clear and vivid witness to omnipotent power at work. Nothing but omnipotence can work with absolute independence of all else. Only in this way can the dependent things of the world have had their beginnings. For only omnipotence, absolute independence can be unqualifiedly first. The world is, in fact, about us. Nothing in it, nor all of it taken together, can make any pretense and omnipotence and at such independence while time grinds out its sentence of ultimate extinction and the facts make their stubbornly just claim of things beginning. We have little choice to deny that the world and ourselves exist at all, or to submit to the fact of creation by which alone things could begin to be. For all of its mystery, for all its un incomprehensibility, for all the terror and challenge of its darkness, it is the stark truth. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. My Way of Life from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood, Chapter 4 God and His Creatures The newborn infant works wonders of reform and perfection on its parents, piercing the hard shell of defense that has hidden them from disinterested or hostile strangers. With that shell broken, a beaming kindliness, understanding, cleanliness, is let loose on the world. Even strangers passing by are warmed by the fires of nobility, of generosity, of self-sacrifice that have been lighted by the infant in the hearts of a man and a woman. We miss most of the truth when we dismiss all this in terms of doting or proud parents. These people are not proud, but humble, humble from the personal confrontation of the mystery of creation. Mother and father know, with an overwhelming sense of humble gratitude, that the soul which gives life to their infant, spiritual and immortal, reaching out to the ends of the universe and beyond to garner truth, soaring to heights of God himself to fill the cup of love, this soul was none of their making. They know and stand in silenced awe, that they were not even the instruments of the production of this soul, not playing even so humble a part as that of a hammer or saw in the making of a bench. For a spirit such as this soul is not made out of anything. It has no parts. It is not produced in slow stages. Not even God himself could give an instrument a part to play in the wondrous work of creating a human soul. These parents know that their child is much more God's than their own, and in that knowledge come close to the joy in the hearts of Mary and Joseph on the first Christmas night. That rich vein of humility so extravagantly given to parents can be mined by any man who dares to face the stupendous fact of creation. One does not know he is engulfed by the awful power of omnipotence, and at the same time, coddle the illusion of proud self-sufficiency. A man must turn his eyes from the mystery of creation before he can find allure in pride's ugly daughters, ruthless ambition, hypocrisy, boasting presumption, 
and quarrelsome contempt for men. And God has made it very hard for a man to blind himself to omnipotence at work all about and within himself. Traces of the Trinity are plainly marked in the non-human world which serves the interests of men. A shadow of that independence of the father of the individual integrity of every substantial thing. The wisdom of the son in the minutely detailed perfection of every kind of thing. The burning will of the Holy Ghost in the smooth order of one thing to another to make up the harmony of the universe. There is more than a trace. There is a positive image of the Trinity in every man's distinctly human activity of mind and will. Man, knowing, reflects the perfection of God-knowing. His generation of knowledge is the temporal image of the eternal generation of divine wisdom. And from that knowledge proceeds the love that is at the same time the dynamic source of all his action and the reiterated proclamation of the eternal flow of substantial love, the Holy Ghost, from Father and Son. The tracings of divinity in our world are as inadequate and unsatisfying as music so faintly heard as to be almost illusory. Each creature is a tiny cup, while divine goodness is a boundless ocean. How much of the awful majesty of God can be portrayed in the miniature of creatures even by a divine artist? No one thing in the world gives more than a hint of the splendor of divinity. All of the uni universe taken together can show forth only a fragment of the divine beauty. But all this is true only in contrast with the limitless source of the goodness, the majesty, the beauty of it all. It can easily dazzle our eyes and our heart by its sheer magnificence. Though it was meant to light burning fires of desire for truth without limit and love without end. Talking in our human fashion, we would say that the first creatures God would think of creating would be those most like him, the angels, and then the things most unlike him, all the world beneath man. For the angels are, like God, pure spirits, whose life is a white heat of knowing and loving, independent of all but God, strangers to death. While the world beneath man is a spiritless world, incapable of the intellect's soaring and the heart's surrender, dependent in every moment and in every activity on things around it and beneath it, constantly devastated by death and renewed by birth. The wonder to our minds is that divine ingenuity should ever have hit upon such creatures as ourselves, both spirit and matter, dissatisfied with anything less than infinite truth and yearning for love's holocaust, dependent on all the world beneath us, yet scorning the limitations of time and space with mind and heart, saddened by death and inspired by birth, yet both terrified and rejoiced by the certainty of eternal life.